We are continuing our series, our Advent series, in the Gospel of Luke. We've titled this series, Prepare Him Room, because the Christmas season offers such a great opportunity. Of course, at times things are busy, but also this season is a time when things slow down, and, and it offers a time every year to really prepare room in our lives for Christ, maybe in ways that we aren't to make room in our lives for God in ways that maybe we aren't, to adjust rhythms of our lives and habits, things like that. And, and the question is, why would we make Jesus, room for Jesus, right? Why, why would we make room for Christ? Today what we're going to see in this, this famous passage, Mary's Magnificent, uh, that it's because Jesus brings us joy. Like, actually, Jesus gives us joy. That that's a reality we can have. Uh, this is why joy is important. Uh, it, it's an important aspect of our lives because, uh, you know, in the winter, one of the things that uh, kind of saddens me is uh, that we're, my kids and I aren't able to play in our pool. And, and one of the favorite things I love to do in our pool is or we'll take beach balls, we'll get the largest ball we can find, we will push it down as far under the water as we can, and I'll try to like get my kids sitting on it, and then we'll release it, right? And they'll try to hold on to it, and they'll like flip backwards, or they'll like pop out of the water with it. Uh, last uh, uh, winter, we were down in Florida, and there was this kiddie pool, and they had this gigantic beach ball, one that I would almost kind of awkwardly lay on, and, and, and then I, was, I finally was able to get under the water, and my son would sit on it, and it would pop him way up in the air, and it was amazing. He'd scream and, and laugh, and at one point, I was on it, and I got it down, and then it just kind of popped out from there between my legs, and there was this random kid floating by in a donut, and it just like perfect angle, like right in the middle. It was like, boom, and the kid flew up in the air, and I was like, nailed it. Uh, but there, I, I give that quick illustration because uh, joy operates in our life like that. No matter what weighs us down, no matter what troubles, no matter what shoves and pushes us down, the circumstances of life, the events, the difficulties, whatever those things are, there's something when we have joy that keeps us buoyant, that it's just like you always rise. Imagine you're the ball, right, the beach ball. Joy is like the air that's filling that beach ball. That no matter what comes your way, that there's just this sense that there's a buoyancy, that it doesn't keep you down, that you have something bigger that your life's framed by. And I think if we're honest, it's, you know, we go through seasons of life where, and perhaps you're in one now, where we hear this idea of joy, it's hard to believe that, and it's hard to believe it because we buy into lies, kind of poke holes in us, Right? The air just seeps out. There, there are things that over time we just forget these things, and so it's just as the pressure comes, it just kind of crushes that joy out of us and just kind of let him go. What we're going to see today with Mary is that Mary, the magnificent, it literally means in Latin to magnify, that Mary zooms in. She focuses her soul on something, and it's something that she is now, she's awakening to of this reality of Jesus, this baby who's in her womb. She's real, awakening to the fullness of the reality of the joy that he is bringing into her life. And Mary's going to take hold of that, and she's going to encourage us in this song to take hold of that joy. And what we're going to see today is that we take hold of joy by taking hold of the promises of God. 
We're going to see how Jesus presents us with certain promises, things that we can hold on to, things that we can bury down deep in our souls that keep us, boy, that keep us filled with joy because they're true. So first we're going to look at the person of joy, the person of joy. We're going to encounter Jesus. Second, then, we're going to look at the promises of joy. What are these promises that, that Jesus brings to us? We're going to look at, is this just mere sentimentalism? Just kind of the sappy thing for the season? Is there something deeper there that we can hold on to, build our lives upon? And then lastly, we're going to see what it looks like to, to participate in joy, or to, or sorry, to prepare for joy, prepare our hearts for joy in this season. So let's pray and we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you. In this season where we're always singing about joy, we're always talking about joy, and there's joy all around us and laughter. And uh, Lord, we just ask in the midst of it, it would not be a fleeting thing, just something that all of a sudden around January 2nd, our souls are deflated and that joy is kind of gone until it rolls around again next year. But Lord, that we would discover here in this passage a joy that is an eternal, gritty, deep, sure joy that we can build our lives on. And so, Lord, would you give us this joy? All of us need it in different ways. There are different uh, ways in which uh, we forget these things, that we let go of these things, or just things we've never even heard or encountered. Lord, Spirit, would you bring these words home in each of our souls wherever it is needed so that we would walk away today just clinging, taking hold of these promises and this joy that you've presented to us and invited us into in Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, the person of joy. So what I want to do, I just had them read the Magnificent for the scripture reading. I want to go to the context right before that prayer of Mary. So you can turn to Luke 1, 39, if you have a Bible. Um, we're going to start there. So starting in verse 39, it says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, Mary... Mary, this Mary here that's referred to is Mary, who be, is the mother, going to be the mother of Jesus, and because there are several Marys in the New Testament. And then this Zacharias, uh, if you remember, he was a priest, and he was in the temple, and he was told of these promises, or this promise that his wife Elizabeth would have a baby, even in her old age. It's very similar to like Abraham and Sarah. And they're going to have a baby, and he doesn't believe the angel. So the angel mutes him. So just that's a little bit of context. So Zechariah, imagine Mary comes and he's sitting in the corner silently. And it says, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. That baby being John the Baptist, baby John, baby Baptist, right? Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So Elizabeth also responds with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now, I cannot help but lead that, read that last verse. Because remember, her husband, who's been muted because he doesn't believe, is sitting in the corner probably. <laughs> and she kind of, it's one of those, you're like, and blessed is she who believed, unlike certain someone in the corner over there, right, who's muted, talking about Zechariah, kind of a poke at Zechariah there in the midst of it. But Mary believed. But I, I think the reason why I see Zechariah kind of in the corner here, kind of in the background, kind of you know, uh, and kind of the juxtaposition of his unbelief to Mary's belief, and because I think we resonate with Zechariah's hesitancy to really believe. I think, well, let's just hit the context. 
because it'll help us relate to it. The, the context here for first century Israelites, it had been 400 years since God had really spoken. This is called the silent period. Ezra and Nehemiah, Old Testament books, kind of close out the Old Testament. That's about a little bit like 419 B.C. There hasn't been a, a really an experience of God's presence in that entire time. Generations upon generations. They had gone through a lot of like geopolitical strife. They've been conquered. They've been liberated. They'd kind of gone through this time where the, the temple probably felt very spiritually stagnant, kind of empty. There's kind of the spiritual darkness. There's kind of this malaise, this depression. And so you can imagine when Zechariah, he's used to this context, and then all of a sudden an angel comes up and goes, hey, guess what? This joy, this new thing is coming, and God's going to do new work. And he kind of hears that, and it's like, hmm, don't know about that. And I, I know that I resonate that with that. When I hear like what I'm talking about this morning, what this passage is talking about, and you might be hearing it in this way where I go, God wants you to have joy. <laughs> he wants you to have something in your life that makes you buoyant, so it doesn't matter what's going on, whatever, whatever the health thing, whatever the economic thing, whatever that thing might be in your life, that in the midst of it, you would have a joy that just keeps your soul buoyant in the midst of all of it, where you're able to endure that and, and even overcome those things. And you may hear that because of the context you're in that's similar to Zacharias, you kind of hear that and you kind of roll your eyes if you're honest. I, I do that. I, I think there's one of two responses. One extreme, which uh, Brandon, who taught last week, I love the phrase he used, he said, this season can be filled with syrupy sentimentalism, right? I just feel it, like it just, this thick ooze, you know, like syrupy. Everyone's seen the meme, right, of all the Hallmark movies, or the real, where it's all the Hallmark movies, and you're like, they're all identically the same, right? But they're all the same time. Like, it's just the same sentimental story of girl moves from the big city back home, and she meets a boy at the farmer's market, and, the, and he's, she helps save his business, right? And it's just kind of these sentimental stories all around us. And it's this idea presenting, like, hey, actually, instead of really having joy, what you can do is kind of have, you can have these moments, kind of these experiences, these, these just kind of moments of happiness for a time. And, and as a reference in the prayer before, like it might even seem like, yeah, this is great. We talk about joy, but I know January 2nd is going to come. The holidays are going to be over. And it's just going to be back to reality. This whole thing of joy is really, it's a nice sentimental idea. It gives us a nice little escape. Maybe it even gives us kind of a useful fiction for a time. But is there anything really there? On the other side, we can, instead of syrupy sentimentalism and just kind of like, let's just escape for a moment and just pretend. Uh, on the other side, there's kind of this cynical suspicion. There's this idea that, that that's just make-believe, that that's just kind of a useful fiction, that's just for folks who are weak, and, and there's nothing really there, there's nothing really good. That, do you see the world around us, what this world is really like? Life is full of things that push you down. It's best that you don't even begin to believe in any of these things, hope for any joy, and you just learn to kind of shove it down and just kind of get through it, because that's just what people do. Grin and bear it. Two extremes. Because the experience of our lives is that things are difficult. Life is full of pain. Life is filled with trouble. So it can be easier just to believe, well, that's just sentimentalism when you hear about joy, or on the other hand, that this is merely just something to be suspicious of, to be cynical towards. I feel a tug of war in my heart in both directions. But see, this is exactly why this 
scene is here. Why Mary is going to say the things that she's going to say. Because what they're encountering here and what's being said here and what's being presented in Scripture, this encounter here is with the God of the universe who came into human history. This is not some kind of a sentimental, hey, have joy, just believe in God and be happy forever. It's not something that's just kind of written in the sky and it's this phantom thing that you just kind of believe in and buy into. But he actually came in real life and what happens here is they respond with joy. John just leaps with joy, and, and Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit and overflows with these joyful expressions because what's happening here for the first time ever is God incarnate, the God who is love and joy and delight within himself eternally, has come into the world, and they're encountering him. And the thing that you and I need the most in this world is an encounter with this Jesus. Because he is not just merely a sentimental idea, nor is he just some useful fiction that we should be cynical about, but he historically entered this world and has brought eternal joy to us. He is the person of joy. And he has brought us what we need. It is not something that we just, it's a useful fiction or something that we make up, but he's brought it to us. And because of that, we can take hold of it. Now, this is what Mary, I, I think what's happening here is Mary's awakening in this encounter to really even like kind of like peeling back the layers of the onion of realizing the marvel of what's happening through this baby that the angel has promised is going to be born by her. She's realizing the joy that's coming into the world. And so what, what Mary does is she then begins to, to respond, to overflow with this song that captures why Jesus brings us a joy that we really can grab a, hold to, uh, uh, grab a hold of and build our lives on. So Jesus is the person of joy, but second, Jesus then brings promises of joy. So Mary's going to begin the Magnificent here in verse 46. And what I should say is you, probably, you may have never heard a, a sermon on the Magnificent. Unfortunately, especially if you know, you're more in evangelicalism or broadly Protestantism, we tend to have an allergic reaction to anything with Mary uh, because we have an allergic reaction to what Roman Catholicism has made of Mary, Mariology and, and, and worship of Mary and, and whatnot. And so we tend to actually kind of downplay this, but I think it's greatly to our detriment. One, it's Scripture. Two, this is Mary is giving this beautiful articulation of, of the joy, of the of the. I guess you could say the foundations or the promises that we can grab hold of that really do anchor our souls through our lives and give us joy. And so, what does Mary say? Look at verse 46. Uh, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. So again, what Mary does here, and this again is where the, the term magnificent comes from, is this idea of magnify. And what Mary's doing here is she zooms in on she focuses on, she magnifies, like, like she puts something under the magnifying glass. And think of Mary's life at this point, right? Like, it's, it's not like we think of Mary, you're right, right? You have like a little, uh, a little uh, manger scene at home, and Mary's this little porcelain doll. She's really pretty, and everything's perfect. Somehow she just had a baby, but she looks great, right? She has her makeup on, right? And, and, and Joseph's right there by her side. But think about this. This is in the middle of the drama. Mary has just found out she's pregnant. She's going to be thinking, is my fiance leaving me? Uh, Mary's wondering economically, what's my future? Will my family disown me? 
probably also just wondering, even though this is supposed to be, you know, an angel's come to her, I'm sure there's insecurities about, like, what, what's going to happen to my body? What's going to happen? What's going to happen to this baby? Is it all going to be healthy? Am I going to do this? Well? Like, all these things are coming into her life. All those troubles, all those things that are pushing, weighing down. And what does Mary do? She magnifies. She could magnify any one of those things. She could zoom in on it. She could focus in on it. Just set her heart on that. She chooses to magnify God and what he is doing in the midst of it. Now, what does she magnify? First and primarily, she magnifies. She realizes who this God is and what he's doing. It says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And then she says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. This is really important for the kind of sentimental versus cynical extremes. You see, Mary realizes with this baby, what, what's happening is the Lord is drawing near to her. The Lord is doing something. Now, if it was only the Lord, the God who is holy, as she'll go on to say, the God who is a God of justice, the God who is powerful and mighty, you could be cynical and wonder, he's coming, but is that good news? He's Lord, but is he for me? On the other hand, then, she brings in Savior. Now, if he was only a Savior, a nice guy, someone predisposed towards mercy and grace, wants to really help me out, wants to really deliver me, then it could be mere sentimentalism. Merely someone who wants to help but is impotent to help, not able to. But Mary says, you are Lord and you are Savior. That you are a God both of perfect justice, of perfect power, of perfect might, and you are a God who is perfect in justice and mercy and love. And in this baby, you bring both. So this is a God who is powerful to accomplish salvation, is predisposed to bring salvation and to bring us joy and freedom. Now, she then says this is for us. Because these things are true, she says these things are for us. For he has looked in humble state. Now, let me, let me break this down because what Mary's going to do is she's going to now give us what I'm going to call a few, uh, this God who's, pretty, who's powerful and gracious is going to give us a few promises. And these are promises that we can build our very lives upon. They're vital. There's not going to be a thing I say that's going to be like, earth-shattering or complete change, but at the same time, these are just sincere, true, deep promises that will change our lives forever. The first one is she says that you, the uh, first one is that Jesus, this baby, gives us a better identity because what he's doing is giving us a better identity. Look at verse 48. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now, I should start here with this one. Obviously, when Mary's referring to herself, she's saying, I'm going to be blessed. Just a little bit of an aside on uh, how do we talk about this, that Mary is the mother of God. We would reject things like the Immaculate Conception. Mary was born. Natural birth. Mary was somebody who had sinned. We would reject all of those claims, one, because they're not in Scripture. But Mary is known in church history as the God-bearer. Can you imagine that being like one day your children are like, what do they call grandma? Well, they, they actually call her the God bearer, right? That's quite a title. <laughs> like, I get a tattoo of that right across my chest, right? But in, this is the term theotokos is the, the term uh, that throughout church history, Mary is the God bearer. 
She's brought God into the world. That she, She's a mother of God. She didn't give birth to a human nature, but to God in a human nature. And here's the mind-bending thing, that God took from Mary a nature. He took from her DNA. He took from Mary's genetic line. And she gave birth to God in a human nature. It's pretty mind-blowing. It's hard to really fathom. What's even more is that God chose to do this with a four, probably about 14-year-old girl. We as modern people, we chat like, wait, 14? Modern world, right? She didn't like, it wasn't in the modern world or the ancient world. They didn't like go to high school, then the college, and then like do an internship, travel the world. And they're like, maybe I'll settle down. It's like, oh, okay. No, they were about 13, 14 years old. She was a working class, 13, 14-year-old girl. And God chose her as the mother of Jesus. Really, there is nothing about her. She doesn't say, blessed are me because I was worthy because I achieved this. She received it. Just God being merciful and drawing near to her. And it radically changed her life because she became one with Christ. And he entered her world identified with her. Now, when you read those words, Mary's like, blessed am I, you know, blessed, blessed will they call me. And you're thinking, how do I, what does this mean for my life? Right? That's great for you, Mary, uh, but unless I bear it, God, uh, what does this have to do with me? Well, what's interesting is that Mary goes on to say in verse 50 that his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So he's going to bless me, but then his mercy, that same mercy that's been shown to me, is going to be for those, everyone who fears him from generation to generation. In other words, Mary is saying something has been inaugurated with me. This moment, this, this thing that God is doing by coming and dwelling with me and becoming one with me and coming into the world through me, that is something that is inaugurated now, but that will continue. Something has started. And what is that thing? Mary was the first human to be united as one with Christ. Mary was the first human ever to be united as one with Christ. That Christ came and was one, and yes, she, in a unique way, came into the world through her, but Mary became one with Christ. Christ drew near to her. And also for us, that extends that Jesus, the joy of the world, will come to each of us and become one with us, be united to us. It just began with Mary. And what happens when that happens is it gives us a completely new and better identity, a sense of self, a sense of significance, who we are, how we should think of ourselves. Now, I know when I start talking about, like, you know, gee, we become one with Christ by faith, gives you a better identity. I know it sounds kind of like um, sentimental, christian speak. Like, what does that really mean? Let me come at it from this direction, why this promise is so important that Jesus becomes one with us and gives us a new identity. Uh, look at, back at verse 48, how it describes, Mary describes God coming to her. He says, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. That line struck out to me because it says that the God of the universe looked upon her and her humble estate. All of her weaknesses, all of her foibles, all of her dependencies, her frailties. And he doesn't just pass her by, but he looks upon her. 
He sees her. You see, the reason why this has to do with identity is I think of how much of our identity is fueled by a fear that we will not be looked on but looked over. How much of our lives are just racked with anxiety that others, opportunities, history will pass us by because there's nothing significant upon which to look in us. So, of course, then, unless we're able to make ourselves adequate, make ourselves special, to demand attention, to make ourselves worthy of being seen, of being looked at. See, our, our modern world, one of the ways this has been put many times, is we no longer live with these received identities. And this has actually amplified a ton in profound ways over the last 50 years with all of the different choices that we make in our lives and form an identity now as we come of age in a way that humanity never did throughout human history. But we no longer receive an identity, but we have to achieve it in every possible way. We have to prove our existence. We have to prove our significance. We have to prove that we're worth the attention Uh, and if we can't, then who are we? Uh, if, if I can't achieve in the way that I, I sense I need to get attention, if I lose the attract attractiveness, uh, if I fail, if I fall behind, then who am I? See, that's one of the biggest things that rob us of joy. That there's just no you there. And yet, what this says is that to a, a girl who she says, it's because of my humble estate, nothing in me. Mary's not saying because, because I was like the porcelain doll image of me or version of me where I had it all together, where I was so worthy, I was so morally pure, I had it all together, I was the maiden of maidens throughout human history, and that's why I was chosen. No, she says, he looked upon me with all of my weaknesses, dependencies, yes, even my sin. He says, I want you. And my question for you is, have you ever sensed that God says, I want you? You've worked hard and maybe built a great career. Awesome. But even if you lose that, I want you. You've, you've kept yourself together and you, you present yourself very well. Even if you lose that, I want you. You've, you've got the house. You've got the stuff. You've, you've got the legacy. All the things. Yes, those are all great, but I want you. Jesus gives us a better identity because he says, I want you and I become one with you, even in your most humble, laid bare estate. That'll change your life as that sinks into your bones. But as Mary realizes that, it, she has kind of a statement here that I think leads into why she says what she does next at the end of 49, because she says, he's done great things for me and holy is his name. She's imagining now the God of the universe is coming into the world in this Christ, and I'm supposed to be, I'm one with him, but he's the holy God of the universe. And I can imagine that for Mary, she's going to begin rehearsing her past. 
She's going to be essentially going, why me? Why would you choose me? Not only am I, is there a sense of insignificance, okay, wait, you've given me a new identity, but also do you know who I am, what I've done, where I've been, and you might have the same thought. And so what Mary does next is she says, the next promise you need is that you need a new past, and that's what we get in Christ. Continuing in verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Mary, why is she alluding to the, like, what's she doing here? Like, is Mary just throwing out words, right? I think sometimes we might read this and be like, I don't know. She's like, God is like arm, and big hand, right? Like, is she just throwing out words? <laughs> and she's like, that sounds nice. Maybe in the Greek, maybe it rhymed or something. Uh, no, she's actually is alluding. She, she's alluding to what God has done throughout history. She's wondering, how can we be reconciled and have a relationship with the Holy God and be one with Him? And so she begins to, to rehearse how God has actually always been doing that, how God has always been redeeming how God has always been drawing near, despite sin and failure. Verse 50, again, it says, this is for every generation, generation to generation. What Mary's saying is, do you see that there is something, if you are in Christ, if you take hold of who God is and what he is doing here, then it means that there is something here for you, every single generation. That means you are, there is something bigger than you that you are a part of. There is a whole history of what God is doing. Your life and your story did not start for me, 1984, for you, 1990, 2005, 1970. Whenever you were born, your story did not start there, Mary is saying. She's saying your story actually started eons ago when the God of the universe began working his redemption. And if he could do it then, he will do it in your life. This is important, I think, that we grasp if we're going to have, like, actual joy. Because if we're honest, we don't just become kind of like, I don't know, I can't stand it when people are like, well, God forgave me, so I don't have to deal with consequences of my sin, just move on, right? Like, no, there's a gritty dealing with sin, and God does it in Christ. But the thing is, as he does, then there's a place where the enemy will push, use those failures, the shame, the past, to just poke holes in your mind and your soul to the point that all the joy just bleeds out when everything pushes down on you. Even make you believe that the whole reason why it's happening is because God's punishing you. Satan comes to kill steal and destroy. And what Jesus is saying is you need to see the bigger past that becomes your past when you become one with me. And Jesus is saying, can't you see that it's always been the story that you have needed a savior? It's always been the story that you fail and you're not able to save yourselves. And it's always been the story that I act that I come and I give my grace, that I deal with your sin, and then I invite you into life forevermore with me. He says, that is the whole story. Jesus says, I came for the sick. Of course I came for you. You say, I'm sick, I'm beyond grace. No, no, you say, you're exactly who I came for. It's been the story from the beginning. This is why he, she alludes to the Exodus in verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts over and over again. If you read the Old Testament, after the Exodus, 
you'll, you'll see this thing of remember, remember, remember. And what is that line? Remember the strong and outstretched arm of the Lord, the hand of the Lord. In other words, the hand, this mighty, this hammer, God's justice, the Lord. But then at the same time, this outstretched hand, like an embrace, which will finalize on the cross. Arms wide, open with grace to embrace, saying, yes, justice and power and might, and then also grace and mercy. And as other places where it refers to like a wing gathering in hands, just this nurturing, come to me. We, in every generation in all of our lives, we have the problem of pharaohs in our soul and pharaohs around us that just enslave us to sin, and we think, I'll never find freedom. And what Jesus says is, I've come in the same way. To be the new blood upon the doorpost, new sacrifice. So then you would walk on out and walk through the judgment waters and you would walk to freedom and deliverance. I've always been doing that. It's your past. He goes into then the exile. The exile is this time after the exodus where Egypt then, or sorry, Israel is a nation, and they keep failing. That sin keeps coming back. It keeps kind of surprising them, grabbing them, pulling them back down, overwhelmed by it again and again. You wonder, why would God save his people? Yet God, he sends them into exile. He changes their hearts. And then he feeds them with good things. He teaches their hearts not to go after the things that are fallen, that don't satisfy. And it says he gives them good things. It's alluding here to the fact that again and again in your life, you may find, I'm in that pattern again and again. Here I go again. Why do I find myself here again? That's the last time. There's no way now I can get back on my feet and I can keep going forward. That's, I've exhausted the grace. And Jesus says, no. I'm a God of the exodus. I'm a God of the exile. I'm a God who continues to provide your escape. Mary reminds herself that yes, while we have a past often filled with shame and sin, rebellion, Jesus promises to redefine our past to one of redemption and restoration. So when we look at the past, it's not merely a story of failures, but it's a story of his redemption. Your past no longer defines you. His past does. And if his past no longer defines you, or his past defines you, that means also it defines your future. That's the last promise. It says, or the, prom the third promise is a sure future. Look at verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So Mary says that our God is one who helps. When life pushes down, God holds up. Now, the question is, why does he do that? Mary says he does it because he remembers his mercy. What's interesting is Mary's saying, when, when problems come, God will help you. And she says, how, how do I have that confidence that God will continue to do that? And she goes actually further back in time to past promises at the very beginning with Abraham. Why this logic? Why does Mary go there? Why does she say, I know I can trust God because he remembers? Why? What's the logic there? What Mary is saying is, I anchor my soul, not in whatever the circumstances of the future may bring, but in the character of God. She knows that God makes the promises. She knows that God says, I will redeem, I will save you. And therefore, we don't have to know exactly everything that the future holds, but we do know the one who holds it. And we can rest there. 
We can think of all the kinds of things outside our control, right? When we think about the future, we think about circumstances, we think about our health, we think about the economy, we think about our kids, and all these things that at the end of the day, many of them are really outside of our control, but in all of them, Mary says, he will help. Why? Because that's who he is. It's not transactional. It's not if you do this or that. But because of who he is. So with all the uncertainties of life, we can hold on to one promise that is sure. God helps us. And, and here's the thing. When we know that God is the one who's predisposed, he will help us. He will uphold us. He will save us. That's the ultimate. That gives you joy. That will give you a buoyancy in any kind of a recession. That will give you a buoyancy in whatever the most shocking diagnosis that will give you a buoyancy in the most stunning turns of life. This isn't joy. These promises aren't sentimental, and we also don't have to be cynical about them. Jesus has secured them. We can be confident and take hold of them. So quickly, how do we prepare for joy? How, how do we really take hold of those? We take hold of joy by preparing room for Jesus in our lives. This is not going to be like a, wow, we didn't even think about this one. It, here's the thing. Mary magnified. Mary chose of all the things in her life to magnify, to put the, the glass and look and go, this is the thing I'm going to zoom in on and make big and focus in on. And, and, and the thing is, well, what happens here? That's what happens with John. He leaps for joy when he encountered Jesus. But here's the thing. We often, if we're honest, I know I often don't. Jesus isn't what I magnify. Uh, what I, I magnify all sorts of things. And here's the thing. Whatever, whatever you magnify is going to be the thing that becomes your source of joy. And, and what Mary's saying is magnify him. Do you have any room and, and, and rhythms in your life where you magnify him? Or is it always the circumstances, always all these other things? And what happens if you magnify those things? Those things will not be able to give you that enduring joy. It may give moments of happiness, or it may just drive you into complete bitterness. What are you magnifying? What's getting big? What's the highlight? What's the, the headline in your mind and in your soul? Practically, first, I would say, so if you're here this morning, I know first service we did uh, several baptisms, and so we had a lot of folks that might have been invited here. I don't know if you were invited here this morning. You're like, uh, you're talking about this with like Christians, like I'm not really a Christian. I just came here with a family member. Uh, here's what I plead with you this morning. The way you take hold of these promises is that you take hold of Christ by faith. These promises are for those who the reality of Jesus coming into the world, dying on a cross, and God's perfect justice meeting them with his mercy and his love there on that cross. It's by faith in looking to Christ and saying, yeah, that looks like the death I deserve. That, that looks like the summary of when, when I'm honest with myself, this, this is what my life, the end of the day, this is what I sense is there's this need for some kind of atonement to deal with that guilt, to deal with that shame, to set me free from that. And what Jesus is saying here is, I am that for you. By faith, you can come to me. This is why I came. 
And so I'm pleading with you this morning, if you have not taken hold of Christ as, as both Lord, saying, yes, you are the king of the universe, and you're the creator, and then also as savior of saying, and I need your grace, and I'll follow you now. I'll, I'll let you show me what it looks like to live life. I promise you, Jesus saying, I will leave you, lead you into joy. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. So if you haven't considered, this may be the only time, I know, like, we don't talk about this in society. This may be the only time where you really slow down and ponder it. I plead with you, come to Christ by faith. If you're someone who's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to follow Jesus, I, I identify as a Christian, how do we take hold of these? The, just ask with each of these, have a question. The, the first promise of that new identity, you know, where are you living with the dread of being looked over? As things get slow this holiday season, like, really think about it. Like, what are all the things that I tend to look, turn to? Like, really want the attention for? And, and just imagine, I don't know how else to put this, just imagine yourself in a room where all those things, what if they were all gone? Good things, right? Like, if I imagine, like, I'm, I, my, who am I without Lauren? Thankfully, I don't have to think this way, but who am I without Lauren? Who am I without my kids? Who am I without being pastor of a church? Who am I without, you know, whatever other things I might add up. And Jesus says, even if you're stripped of all those things, I want you. Have that time where you set those things before the Lord and go, Lord, I want to understand you for seeing me as me and coming from me. Then the other, the second one, where am I only living in light of my, you know, my past, the rebellion, the thinking God's redemptive past? You know, what are the accusatory voices of shame that keep coming up? And, and one of the things I want to encourage us with is, you know, what happens here when John encounters Jesus as he leaps for joy? And I think there is something about a powerful thing we can do in one another's life is we can say, you know what, I could either focus in and pounce on the frailties, on the sin in your life. There's a time for speaking up, right? Speaking truth and love. I think we're often like when you just pounce and do an idle witch hunt all the time and pound some people's sin. Instead, if we're saying also though, I see where God has been redeeming you. You can look at someone's life and you can either see where God is in the work of redeeming them and you can also see where there's usually ongoing struggles with things. But what if you began to help them see that your past now is, a, is also a record of God redemptively changing you? And so of always pouncing on sin, we actually leap with joy when we see God's grace at work in one another. You have a powerful voice in, the, the room, in this room with those around you, with those in your life, where you can say, I see where God is at work in you. Is there someone you could encourage? We could say, I see how your past, maybe you're only focused on the record of your failures, but actually I see also a record emerging of God's grace increasingly growing in you. That could change somebody's life. It'll fill them with joy for sure. Then the last one, where am I anxious about the future? What are the areas that come to mind? I know we all have the, I have all kinds of these things that come to mind all the time. And, and here's the thing, we often don't take inventory of them. I encourage you just write them down, actually put them on a piece of paper, and then just place them before the Lord, like physically move them and say, Lord, I, I'm not saying I'm giving up like, hey, God, it's yours. I'm not gonna worry about my career, not going to work tomorrow, right? Like not saying that. I'm saying you hand it to him and go, Lord, I can't control these ultimately. And imagine him holding them in his hand. Lord, hold these. 
carry these and then operate from that place. He cares for you. He helps. Listen, this is a time in the season where things start to slow down, and I would encourage you as it slows down in that silence, run to fill it with magnification of God's promises. Find ways to do it. Use this season to magnify these truths, not mere sentimental ideas, nor do we need to be cynical, right? But we can be confident and take hold of them. So this season, prepare him room. Prepare him room by taking hold of joy that's found in the promises of God. Because when we do, whatever pushes us down, whatever weighs us down, still our hearts will leap with joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we thank you for these promises. Lord, I I ask that you would just bring these to bear in our lives wherever they need to be. Lord, would you root them down in our soul? Would you speak to us, Spirit? Would you guide us how to apply these things, to take hold of these things? So, Lord, our, our souls would be buoyant that we wouldn't just be trying to jump from one thing to the next, one sentimental experience, or even just develop a cynicalism, cynicism. But, Lord, that we would take hold of these with confidence. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.